All right, well, I'd like to introduce you to Doug Snow, if you don't know him. I don't know him at all, really. I've just <laughs> met him a couple times. But he was the pastor of Calvary Chapel Southeast Portland. So he's been, he's seen things. Okay. <laughs> Lots of things. Yeah. So he's going to bring the word today. I'm going to pray for him real quick. All right, Lord, uh, just thank you for this brother here who's willing to share um, today. I pray you just bless this sermon and just let the people um, give him ears to hear and eyes to see. And uh, God, ultimately, we pray you to open their ears and eyes to hear and see today. God, thank you for him and the life of ministry you've given him. And just bless the, the teaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is good to be here with you today. For those of you who haven't met us, we've met some of you already. Uh, my wife and I, we moved here. My beautiful wife, Janet, you want to stand up? She says, no way, I'm not going to do that. Just stand up. <laughs> we moved here in December. Uh, last year, we completed 30 years of ministry at Calvary Chapel Southeast. And uh, we felt it was time for the turn uh, the church over and pass on the baton. And so God gave us the grace to do that. We thought, well, where do we want to go? Well, we want to go somewhere where there's sun, but we don't want to go down to Texas. And we don't want to go down to Arizona. So we figured no better place to go than here. Of course, all of our kids are within a couple hours driving distance, so that helps seeing the grandkids. But it is good to be here with you. I've known Rory for a number of years. Um, I, it's been a joy of my life to watch the Lord working in him and to see his growth as a pastor um, worthy of respect and honor, and I've uh, been thrilled with his teaching, and just what a blessing it is for us. And so, um, and I also feel honored that he would ask me to share with you today. And so, if you have your Bibles, would you please open them to Romans chapter 2, as we're going to continue in the study of Romans. We're going to begin at verse 17, and I would ask you, uh, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, they have people who can give you one. If you need one, if you need one, raise your hand. But if you please stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to pick up at verse 17, Romans 2. Paul continues, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and you make your boast in God and you know his will. And approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you who make your boast in the law, you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Please pray with me. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have of gathering together again, and we worship you. We look around outside and we see all the things, God, that you have made. Lord, you're our creator, and the word tells us that you are holy and that you are righteous, that you're perfectly pure. And Lord, as even we consider today that you are all powerful, Lord, there is nothing that you can't do. Lord, that you're always present. There's nowhere we can go from your presence. And Lord, that you know all things. We're humbled by the fact, Lord, that today you know us intimately. Lord, you know all about us. You know our wrestlings. You know the things we fear. You know, Lord, the things we like. Lord, you know the things we do. And you don't just know the things we do. You know why we do the things we do. And so, Lord, we're humbled as we come into your presence today. We pray, Father, that you would meet us here. Because we are a people, Lord, who are desperate for you, especially in this day in which we live. God, we pray that we would grow and mature and be a testimony to you in a very lost world that needs Jesus. And so, Father, even now, Lord, we pray for your blessing. We pray for your blessing on pastors and teachers throughout this city today that are proclaiming your word, Lord. We pray that you would bless them and bless your people everywhere, we pray, God, today. We're so glad to be part of the body of Christ. What a blessing for us. And so, Lord, now we do pray that you open our hearts to receive from your word today that which you might speak to us. And if there's just one nugget that you give us today, that, God, we would treasure it and hold on to it. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe seated. Sam, in awe a little bit today as I think about the fact that of all time in history, out of all the years that have come and gone, that God would have chosen me and you to live at this particular time. That he chose us to live at a time where we're watching, really, I believe, things wind up. There definitely things have gone crazy in the world. Can you guys say amen to that? I mean, it's like, it's just happening everywhere. You look around and you see it. There's no mystery that there are forces of evil at work in this world and that's kind of everything's unfolding. Nothing makes sense, really, even to the rational mind. But I'm so grateful that in the middle of all this chaos in the world that we still have the Word of God. You know, that we still have His Word because it never changes. And I really believe it's so important for us to understand that when we look at the Word of God, that it is the measurement of all things. And a lot of mistakes a lot of people are making on our day is they're judging the Bible against the culture when you should be, a, a, you know, assessing the culture against the standard of the Bible because it's, it's eternal. It doesn't change. And so I find my greatest comfort in coming to the word. Oh, yes, Lord, you're just so good. But I love the fact that when you think about it, Jesus came to save sinners. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Because there are no others. All there is is sinners. This is all there is. I'm one, you're one. The blessings for us to believe is that our eyes have been opened to the truth of our condition and our need for a Savior. And it has to be a work of grace because there's no way on earth that any of us would ever deserve His favor. There's no way that we could ever earn His favor. 
It is true that it's one of the most difficult things in the world is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who believe they are morally good. That they can kind of present themselves before by their own good works and what they do. You see, they have to come, in order to come to Jesus, you have to come to this deep conviction that you're a sinner and that you're completely incapable of saving yourself. And that's why it's so difficult for even religious people, devout religious people who find themselves morally acceptable for them to realize that they too are sinners and desperate savior. Why? Because they don't think they need one. They simply don't know that they need one. And what you call this people is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a gross sin and offense to God because it in essence denies the true condition of our own heart apart from the grace of God that is offered through Jesus Christ alone. Self-righteousness is a bold proclamation that you don't need Jesus, that you can make it on your own merit, that, that's seen over and over again as you go through the Gospels, when you realize that Jesus' greatest conflict wasn't with the world, it was with, with religious leaders. You see, they were self-righteous. They believed that their own works, their perceived works, were good enough to gain the, the merit of God for their own salvation. And the truth is, this is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other world religion. All over the world, there's religions that stand on the merits of works, self-performance, seeking to find favor of God or of the gods. The gospel alone is of no value to those who are self-righteous. Biblical Christianity is completely contingent on the, poor, on the performance of another and attaining our salvation because he alone is righteous. You see, the world uses these faulty judgments. They kind of foolishly, you know, they assess themselves against the performance of others. You know, it's like I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I was at the prison for many years. We had a prison at OSP, Oregon State Prison place filled with murderers. I met some of those godly men that I've ever known in that prison. But there were some men who went through this real judgmental phase like we all do, I think. They said, you know, uh, I don't, <laughs> they're finding fault with all these other brothers there. They said, well, you know, he's really an awful guy. You know, I'm, I'm a good bad guy, but he's a bad, bad guy. <laughs> we kind of tend to say, well, I'm good. You know, I'm next to him. I'm okay. If, I mean, I'm not that bad. The truth is we're all, of course, lost. Because our faith, this Christianity, is the only religion based on the merit and on the account of one who has done for us what is utterly impossible for us to do for ourselves. And that's why it is called grace. So often people are deceived, they're misled to thinking, even people who believe that God exists, that when God created the world, he simply set men in motion to kind of go through life and simply to be good. That he gave the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions, by the way, but the Ten Commandments, to people so they can have a clear understanding of how they could be good. So they could do what they need to do, not do what they shouldn't do, live by the rules and regulations, you know, when everything is okay. Thus religion is reduced often to a list of do's and don'ts, performing certain rituals before the Lord, and if you don't do certain things, and you do other things, you're considered good people, you're considered acceptable to God, and they foolishly believe that one day, that God is going to, by His God is going to judge people by how good they've been against by how bad they've been. And if your good outweighs the bad, then I think I'll take you and you can be saved. But if not, then you're lost to hell forever. 
But in Romans, and this is why I love this book so much, Paul proves without a doubt that no one, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, will ever be able to stand before a righteous God, the judge of all on their own merits to, merits to get acceptance by God. As we move on to this section here this morning, Paul here gets to the heart of the issue. What is it that God is really looking for from his creation? What is he really after? What does God truly desire from you and from me? Paul shows us in these chapters here that we were created to fellowship with God. We were created to worship him and love him and receive his love in return for us. And that is only possible, we know, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That all you have to ever do to qualify for this salvation is be a sinner willing to confess that you're a sinner. And willing to cry out to the Lord in repentance and seek the salvation that he gives. Only sinners can be saved and redeemed. And again, that makes me so glad because that's what I am and what I've been. But by the grace of God, he holds me. In chapter 1, Paul established the doctrine of man's guilt and depravity apart from God's grace. He showed that God has clearly revealed the truth of his being through natural revelation. That all of his creation declares the reality that he is the creator. He has clearly communicated himself. And it is the pride and rebellion of humanity in the hearts of blind eyes that reject the truth of God. But he showed that no one can say that God has not made himself known through what he has made. That there are no excuses. Yet despite God's revelation as creator, man willfully, he purposely suppresses and rejects the truth of God and chooses rather to worship the creation, the things made, over the creator, the one who made those things. And consequently, due to that suppression and rejection of the truth, he showed that God is now presently being revealed in the world and that he is allowing humanity to suffer the consequences of their own rejection of God. He gives them over to their own sin. And he allows them to sink deeper and deeper into the depravity of mind as we're watching take place in the world today. And I find this to be an interesting thought that ever since the beginning of time, that people of every nation, tribe, and tongue have known what it is to experience guilt. And they have sought to do something by which they could appease their guilt through some form of sacrifice. Even people who have never heard one word of the Bible or of the law, they still suffer guilt. Why? Because God has placed within us this moral conscience, which serves as a type of inner moral detector, a warning indicator of violation. It aids us in understanding, they're discerning what is right and wrong. So people, by and large, are out there in the world, they know guilt and they know shame. They know something's wrong. So they will do everything they can to alleviate that guilt. Thus the attraction to alcohol and drugs, the appeal to the myriads of religions and psychotherapies and vain pursuits of carnal pleasures. And the most dangerous condition known to man, people, is a seared and a hardened conscience. When that conscience becomes so deadened that it's desensitized to any sense of morality to discern right from wrong, given over to their own depravity and sexual perversion of every form. I grieve for what I see in the world. It's no wonder we see this world in the condition it is. But we have to understand the world does what it does 
because it is blind, because it is dead in sin. People are crazy because they've rejected what is true by God's grace alone. This is why I thank God for every one of you this morning are believers. We can say, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. We know this new progressive morality is nothing more than old immorality with a new name. And it still leaves people in their guilt and their shame, striving in the flesh to deaden and silence the conscience that condemns them. And all the things that we see is nothing but a world suffering the consequence of its unbelief and rebellion against the truth of God that's made clear. In chapter 2, Paul deals with the issue of judgment. He lays out four fundamental principles of judgment in this chapter. Number one, he shows that God judges all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, according to the truth of his word. Secondly, he has shown as we go on through this chapter that God judges all people. He judges Jews and Gentiles alike according to their deeds. Thirdly, he has shown that God judges all people, Jew and Gentile alike, impartially without prejudice, that he is just in all of his judgments. Ira went through this last week. But today we see that God judges all people, Jew and Gentile alike, according to the light and the knowledge by which they've been given. Jesus once said this, to whom much is given, much is required. What he means by that, the more light you've been given, the more you're accountable for what you've been given. The more you know, the more you're accountable for what you know. And thus, Paul comes back here in verse 17, addresses the Jews specifically in verse 17. Indeed, he says, you are called the Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God. Paul here addresses the Jews. Those ones who are considered to be God's favored, most blessed people among nations. But he looks at the Jew and he says to him, now you, what about you? What about you who profess to be a professor of the law and you boast in God? You bear that name Jew, descendant of Abraham. You're regarded as God's chosen people. But I like what he does here. He says, you who are called a Jew. You who are making claim of, a, of something you say is genuine. And he distinguishes here between the verbiage and the reality. Now it is true. That as Jews, descendants of Abraham, they were a people set apart from God, from all nations, to be a holy nation, a people set apart for God. It was also true that it was the Jews that God gave his holy law through Moses. And the law, of course, is his written revelation declaring who he is, his divine attributes and holiness and holy character. He describes what he wants or what he, what he proclaims the requirements are of man and how he must be worshipped. But the Jews were a people distinguished among all the nations. God had purposed the Jews to be a light for the world. Those who represented the righteousness of a holy God to an unbelieving world. You see, God spoke to Moses in Exodus 19, 5. And he said this to Moses, just as he's ready to give him the Ten Commandments. He says, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom and a priest and a holy nation. Now somebody could read that verse and go, man, that's an awesome promise. That's awesome that God's coming. He's going to be a special treasure. You know, he's going to be, there'll be his kingdom, a priest, a holy nation. But there's one word they kind of miss in that whole thing. It's the word if. 
It's that word if. See, if sets condition. You see, obedience, he is saying, is the key to the blessing of the covenant of law. Paul says to these Jews, yeah, you boast. You brag about being a Jew, God's favorite, you think, that you're so special and maybe not even as accountable as to those Gentiles over there who have no law. And in pride, he says, you make your boast in God. And you foolishly believe and you boast that you're because you're mere descendants and possessors of the covenant, that somehow you're more righteous than others by who you are. He says, verse 18, and, know, and, and you know his will. You approve of the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You think because you're a Jew and possess the law, because you know his will and approve of the things taught in the law, that somehow that makes you superior. That somehow and that in itself makes you more righteous. And it is true. They did possess the law. They did approve of the law. And they prided themselves in being able to make moral judgments. The problem is they simply believed knowing the law made them morally superior to those ignorant Gentiles who had no law. And in their pride, they were possessing the law, knowing the law was, they thought they were a guide to those who were blind, a light to those who were walking in darkness. He says, you think that you are instructors for fools and teachers of babes. And again here, I refer back to the conflict as you go through the Gospels that Jesus had with the religious leaders. Because they were self-righteous in their pride, they became blinded to their own condition and need. They became the adversaries of Jesus, not the friends of Jesus. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 14, he said, they are blind leaders of the blind and the blind lead the blind. Both will fall into a ditch. I love chapter 23 of Matthew. I love it where Jesus just lays it out. I mean, if these guys had any, <laughs> any hope of self-righteousness, he blasts them. But he calls them, you blind guides. He says, you strain, up, strain out gnats and swallow camels. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish, that the outside may also be clean. You see, the Jews... These religious leaders would go to the synagogues and they would expound upon the law and the greatness of the law. And they would grow in their, in their own pride and they'd point fingers at everyone else and judge everyone else. But Paul is saying to them right here, here's the big question. What do you do with the knowledge you've been given? Does simply merely knowing and possessing law make you superior? In verse 21, he says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that a man should not steal. Well, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In essence, what Paul is doing here is he's taking the very law that they boasted in to expose them to who they really are. Since you boast in the law and you agree with the law, tell me, what has the law done for you? How has it worked in your life? How is the law being activated in you? 
in your privileged places as Jews and guardians, possession of the law, do you practice what you preach? That's a good question. Do you teach yourselves? Do you live by what you're saying? And he rehearses here, he rehearses here some that take commandments. Thou shalt not steal. He says, well, do you steal? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, do you? Thou shalt not have any idols. Well, do you rob temples? And of course, this is a refer reference to the greed. He said, yeah, you might teach it. You might preach it. You might acknowledge that the word of God or the, that the law is perfect and pure. But are you practicing what you teach and what you preach? You like to expose others to the light of the law. You love to beat them up with the law. You use it to judge them for breaking the law while refusing to allow the light of the law to confront you as you disobey the law. See, the Jews, what they would do is some of these, they would sit around and feel very good about themselves because after all, they're better than everyone. They feel kind of smug, but they couldn't see their own condition. By the way, we can be guilty of the same thing, can't we? Ever been to church, heard a really good message that's convicting and thought to yourself, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They need to hear this. <laughs> I know you're, you all get that, right? You've been there. But here's the thing. What if God was trying to speak to you? What if you're the one he was trying to address? See, it's always the thing. God's got a word for everybody else, but what is he trying to say to me? We can look at everyone and think, man, they're messed up. See, pride, any pride or sense of self-righteousness makes you blind to your own condition. And consequently, you become fault finders and critical of others. But the word of God would say, what about you? And by the way, can I say this? Fault finding and judgment is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps the main point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he used the law to expose and shine a light on the hearts of sinful men, where Jesus showed here it's possible to look upon a woman with lust and commit adultery with her in your heart. That it's possible to commit adultery with, out, and though not outwardly, but inwardly in your own being. That it's possible to commit idolatry and not out, outwardly. It's possible to steal without ever acting outwardly. How? Because everything first takes place right here in the heart. Jesus said, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemies. These are things which defile a man. He says it all takes place right here. And what is Paul saying here? You may think you're okay. You may think that you're better than others because you have the knowledge of the law, but your knowledge has done nothing for you but lead you to pride and has blinded you to your own condition. Blinded deaf from age two, Helen Keller was asked by a young boy one day, isn't it the worst thing in the world to be blind? Smiling, she said, not half so bad as to have two good eyes and see nothing. How true. There are none so blind as those who will not see. All self-righteousness is of the flesh and can only produce the, the, the bad fruit of the flesh. It is impossible for pride and self-righteousness to bear the good works that only God can do through his spirit. 
See, you can go to church on Sunday. This is convicting. It convicts me because I preach to myself when I preach. But it's easy to go to church on Sunday and put on Jesus' face and put on this smile and amen, everything's fine. Pretending. Others playing the part. You can go to church. You can do all remain untouched by the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Of religious leaders, Jesus said this. He said, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. By all the works they do to be seen by men, they make the phylacteries broad and large borders of garments. They, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greeting in the marketplace to be greeted and called rabbi, rabbi. Jesus said, you do everything you do for show. When I'm after the heart, Everything you do is for other people to see and to, and to appraise you. In Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one single proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. That's strong language Jesus uses. In their self-righteous pride, they're unable to see the sin of their own rebellion and unbelief. They see the sin of everyone else, but they can't see it in themselves. It says in verse 23, you who make your boast of the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. He says their hypocrisy, their phoniness has made a mockery of the Lord. They've dishonored his name by the way that they've lived. Why? Because they've been man pleasers, not God pleasers. They cared more about what men thought than what God thought. And as a result, God's name, he says, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. By the way, that quote there comes out of uh, 2 Samuel twelve fourteen, where he says the name of God is blasphemed. In the context, that was when David is, is confronted by Nathan the prophet and exposed for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. You see, he's saying David's sin brought reproach and dishonor on the name of God, just as ours does. One thing you know this is that people can spot hypocrisy. They see it. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. I saw it. I saw it in my own, my own home. I saw it with my family. I saw it with myself. Story is told of a man who came down from Carolina Mountains one day. He was all dressed up and he had his Bible under his arm. And his friend saw him and said, Elias, what's happening? He said, where are you going all dressed up like that? Well, he says, well, I'm heading to New Orleans. I've heard there's been a lot of free running liquor down there and a lot of good gambling down there and a lot of naughty shows. His friend looked at him and said, well, but Elias, why are you carrying your Bible under your arm? Well, he says, if it's as good as they say it is, I'm staying till Sunday. <laughs> That's why so many in the church, they despise church. Why? Because they say, I see nothing but a gathering of play actors and hypocrites. Face it, this is convicting because we all battle this hypocrisy to a degree. We all know what it is to kind of play act and, and try to look more spiritual or righteous in the eyes of others than we really are. You know, we, we can all play the hypocrite. You know, maybe we think <laughs> we need to understand that hypocrites need a savior too. Even hypocrites, aren't you glad for that? Yes. Hypocrites need their Savior. And I always say there's room for one more. 
because he came to save sinners. The truth is, we don't want others to see the truth about us. So we put on our Jesus face and we learn how to speak Christianese. And, hey, brother, how are you today? God bless you. And, and the Lord good. And we can, we can do it all. And sometimes we're sincere, but other times it's simply the language. Rather than just humble ourselves before God and one another and admit and confess, man, we're a mess apart from the grace of God. I don't know about you, but I am a mess by myself. I live with me. I know who I am, and I know this. I am dependent upon the grace of God because I know the truth, and I know God knows the truth. You see, the Lord is dishonored when we don't practice what we preach and we say one thing and do another, when we criticize others for doing the very same things that we do. Because if God can't work in our lives and change us and transform us in honest humility, how in the world or why in the world will we ever expect others to believe that God can be real and powerful in their lives? Parents, just say a word to you. I say this in love. But if God isn't number one in your life, if he isn't ruling you at home, how in the world could you ever expect your children to grow up to be more spiritual than you are? How could you ever expect them to have a greater intimacy with God than you have? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God intends this, people, that we would be a light to the lost. That these lives, sinners saved by grace through faith, would testify to a lost world, a dying world, that there is hope. That there's a God who is merciful and gracious, and he understands our condition, and so he did something about it. You see, there's nothing in the world that has power to do what the gospel can do, and that is this. Change the inner nature of our being. Only God can do that. Only God can change my very nature. He's the only one who has power to do it. And it only comes when I humble myself and submit myself to him. A.W. Tozer said, I'm afraid that we modern Christians are long on talk and short on conduct. We use the language of power, but our deeds are the deeds of weakness. We settle for words and religion because deeds are too costly. It's easier to pray, Lord, help me to carry my cross daily than it is to pick up the cross and carry it. But since a mere request for help to do something we do not actually intend to do a certain degree of religious comfort, we are content with repetition of the words. Man, that's convicting. Ouch. I don't like that. I want to be real, God. I want to be real before you and before others. I want to be real. I want to show what's really going on. I'm just a, a sinner saved by grace and God's changing my life and I know he's doing the same thing in your life. This is where Cobb comes back to with these Jews. He says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Paul brings up the issue of circumcision here because this is a big deal for the Jews. I'm sure you guys know you're well taught in this church that circumcision was a sign of the identity of the Jews. You know, God first instituted the circumcision, Genesis 17 with Abraham. And beginning with Abraham and his household, God commanded that every Jewish male should, was to be circumcised. You see, circumcision was to the Jew an outward sign of the covenant relationship they had with God. It was much like the, the wedding ring we use as a symbol of the covenant we have with our wife or our husband. 
They're worn as reminders of our covenant. But it distinguished the Jews as a people who belonged to God, set apart for God. And physically outward, it was the cutting of the foreskin of the male genitals. But spiritually and symbolically, it represented the cutting off of the flesh life. It was a declaration of faith in God. It is interesting to note here that this circumcision was instituted after the birth of Ishmael. That had been a work of Abraham's flesh. When he and Sarah tried to help God out with his promise. But it was after the birth of Isaac. Who became the son of promise and faith. You see Ishmael. As you go in scripture, he was a product of flesh, of worldly wisdom. And he and Isaac is a product of faith. But to Abraham and all the descendants, circumcision would serve as a symbol of faith, of their trust in God. But God wanted to be much more than symbolic action, an outward ritual. It was to carry deep meaning within their very heart. Again, Jews boasted in their circumcision, the outward sign. That the outward sign was everything. One rabbi said at one point, he said, no circumcised man will see hell. Another said, circumcision saves from hell. But God had a much deeper meaning for circumcision. It was to serve as an outward sign of an inward reality, much like water baptism is for us. The point Paul is making to the Jews is this. Though you boast in your circumcision, a sign of your identity as Jews according to the law, your circumcision of no value to you unless it does something within you. Unless it does something within you. He says in verse 17, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even when you have the written law of circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Paul throws these guys a real curveball here. He's saying that a Gentile who is not circumcised outwardly, yet obeys the Lord through conscience, is better off than that Jew who has been given the greater light of truth, who possesses the truth, knows the truth, wears it like a badge, yet does not obey the law. So he says in verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that of which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. It's in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. The point that Paul is making here to these proud Jews is this. It's all a matter of the heart. God is after the heart. He isn't after part of us. He's after the heart of us. Because if he has the heart, he will have every part. God's looking for the circumcised heart, that inward change of heart, made alive by faith, not of the letter. He isn't looking for performance at the expense of inward transformation, but a life that is inwardly changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, working inwardly through according to grace. Jeremiah was promised this, the covenant. He said, but this covenant that I will make to the house of Israel after those days is the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves nor think anything of being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God who also made sufficient us as sufficient Ministers of this new covenant, not the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 
I love that. It says the letter. Do you want to live by the letter? It's going to kill you. The Spirit of God gives life. It's all a matter of the heart. When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? Well, the heart is the, the core of our being. When I think of the heart, I think of the converted heart. Joseph Stowell, who was the president of Moody Bible College, said this of the heart. He said, heart is used of Scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is our, it is our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscience and, de and decisive spiritual activity. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole, his feelings, desires, passions, thoughts, understanding, and will. He's the center of the person. That's the heart. This is to where God turns, and this is what God is longing for with you and with me. What God has always been after for the Jew and now for the Gentile, for all. He's after the heart, a converted heart, a changed heart. A heart that's been washed and cleansed. For only a heart that has been redeemed and washed and cleansed can have fellowship with God. Can have true fellowship. Aren't you glad? I thank God every day. Lord, thank you for letting me talk to you. For having anything to do with me at all. Because you've cleansed my heart. I have a right to come to you. And I have a right to ask you and seek your face. All of what Christ came to do. Hypocrites and showmen, they seek to praise men. But those who are born of the Spirit, they seek the acceptance of God, found only through acceptance, only through the cleansing blood of Jesus. Because a right relationship here, people. And I can say this, of all the years I grew up with, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there came a day in my life when it went from here and it came to here. And I understood it. He really does love me. But it took his grace to open my eyes to receive forgiveness of my sin. Donald Gray Barhouse says, For he's not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is that church membership which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly. And church membership is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's what I'm trying to seek and serve. The true marking and authenticity of our faith is not found in our outward symbols, but in this transformation of a heart that now has a relationship with God. And the truth is, some who believe in the inerrancy of the original autographs of the scripture, some who will fight to the very last fight, the veracity of the Bible, are going to be lost. Why? Because they have been lulled by a false sense of religion, of security that has never led them to a change of heart. This is where Paul's going with all this to these Jews. And he's going to make this very clear in chapter 3. That the very law that they were boasting in is reality the very law that condemned them in judgment. That you too, he is saying, are guilty and in need of a savior. See, the law, people, is perfect. But it proves all the more that we are not. And that's why Jesus would make that boast in John 14, 6, when he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Only a cleansed heart can have fellowship with a righteous God. We trust him and him alone. The judgment of God is not based on your father, your mother, your ancestry, your bank account, your educational status. 
It's not based on what church you attend or the version of the Bible that you read. Bible declares that all people everywhere, every man, every woman, every Jew, Gentile, old, young, regardless of race or age, will stand before a holy and righteous judge one day. And the only ones who will ever be able to stand in place are those who have placed their faith in the only righteous one, and that's Jesus. See, God recognizes two kinds of people in the world. You either got the saints or you got the ain'ts. You got the saved, the saved, the unsaved, the repentant and the unrepentant, the regenerate and the unregenerate. You have children, then you have strangers. True Christians are people with transformed hearts. They want their heart right with God. We seek to live our life with a heart that is tender toward God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And with these cleansed hearts, we can worship God, have fellowship with him, enjoy him, knowing that he knows all about us. Blows me away. God knows me. He knows why I do what I do, yet he still loves me. Does that not get to you? He knows you, and he still loves you. Man, that's awesome. I know he loves me. His grace is working in me, and he's changing us by his grace. No wonder Paul would make that proclamation, Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In closing, I just want to read the words of this great old hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock. Worship team, you can kind of make your way up here, please. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I'll rest on his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy day, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me ask you, where's your heart? It's the heart. He's after the heart. Father, I thank you, Lord, just giving us this day. And oh God, you love us. You know all about us. And everything that you've ever done is proof of your love, God. But the greatest evidence of your love is when your son sent your son Jesus to be the offering for our sin. Knowing that me, we as people, as messes we are, God, that we needed your grace. We needed a savior. 
And I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts, God, that you would transform us and that we would understand, God, it's not the performance. It's the heart. You're seeking the heart. God, that you would change us, Lord, that you would mold us from the inside and work outward. Jesus, I pray you keep us from mere religion and that, Lord, you would drive us to an active faith daily depending upon you for every good thing. And so, Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. There's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus. Don't let the judgment of God throw you off because he's provided a way by which there is no judgment. That's the blood of Jesus. And he calls you to faith. And I know there are people here today who would love to talk with you. And I'm sure be up here around the end to talk to you. If you don't know Jesus, make today your day. Because he is a savior and all the stuff going on in the world today, there is a place of security and there is a place of blessing that is for you. Forgiveness of sin, isn't that wonderful? All taken away. 